You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am your host, Michael Ware. Glad to be with you for another episode. And uh, like I said last week, I was excited before I recorded the interview with our guest this week. Even more excited now to share it with you. We have Sean McElwee from uh, Data for Progress uh, as our guest. Sean has been someone who has been driving much of the conversation throughout the Democratic primary. Uh, he's someone uh, with his organization who's going to be, I think, a central player in progressive Democratic politics uh, for years to come and excited to hear his perspective Sean, you're going to learn more about him. An interesting guy, particularly for many of you listening. I think you'll appreciate much of what he has to say, much of his background. And so before we get to the interview, I do want to cover two topics uh, related to the 2020 race. Uh, The first is, uh, as we uh, previewed last week, Vice President Biden has announced his running mate selection committee. This is the committee that will be vetting and offering up to Biden their findings related to potential running mates that will inform the vice president's selection. Uh, That committee includes former uh, Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd, uh, Delaware Congresswoman Lisa Blunt uh, Rochester, uh, L.A. Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti, and former White House and Senate counsel Cynthia Hogan. Uh, and so this is an important step of the process. We've talked on this show before, and I don't feel like I need to revisit, except to say that I think, you know, the way this is in, unfolding, you know, validates my concerns about saying publicly that uh, before uh, uh, before this committee was announced, even, that you will uh, be choosing a female running mate. I think it's um, it's put a target on some of the potential running mates back in a way that wouldn't have been quite so direct uh, without limiting the process to just female candidates. Uh, I think that it's sharpened sort of the ideological costs of the pick. And look, I, I could think of reasons internally why maybe they maybe they wanted to set it up this way. My main point has just been like, I, I hope they did. <laughs> I, I hope that uh, this wasn't uh, a quick decision made to help turn the conversation on a primary that uh, that was made without thinking about the general election sort of consequences. And again, just to be clear, my argument is not that internally they shouldn't have decided we're going to have a female vice president. That's fine. W- what I've raised is the strategic decision of announcing that to the public and gosh, when was that debate in February or March, you know, months and months before the VP is even going to be announced, but that, that horse has left the barn and uh, the Biden campaign is going to have to deal with the consequences and questions that, that come from, come from that decision. The second issue I wanted to raise is something we haven't talked about intentionally uh, on uh, the podcast over the last few weeks, and that is Tara Reid's uh, allegations that when she was a Senate staffer in 1993 
for Joe Biden that he pinned her up against a wall uh, and penetrated her with his fingers. Um, it's a very serious allegation. Um, and some of you have reached out. Uh, uh, well, and I should say it's it's been in the news anew this week because of a Business Insider uh, report that talked to a former neighbor on the record who validated that Reed had told her about this alleged assault. And then on Friday, uh, former Vice President Biden spoke to the allegations for the first time publicly, uh, unequivocally denying them. A couple of folks have reached out over email just to get my my thoughts on on this, and I, I gave my thoughts over email. But I did feel like it was uh, appropriate to uh, to talk about this on the podcast. And look, my my general approach that has been consistent for Kavanaugh is a posture of paying very close attention and following very closely the investigative journalism, uh, the direct words from the person making the accusation, and being judicious about what I say publicly. There are several reasons for this. One, I think it can be kind of crass generally to treat an allegation that is so serious as sort of another marker in a horse race in, in, in presidential politics. I, I just want to be just want to be clear here. If the accusations against Joe Biden are true, if the accusations against Justice Kavanaugh are true, yes, they would be disqualified from the offices they are seeking or that they hold. But that's like the least of my concerns. In other words, yes, these accusations are implicate our politics. And at some level, it's not crazy to apply political analysis to them. Uh, but what they most need is is a criminal and investigative analysis. And so, so that would be the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that, uh, and I think we've seen this in some of the op-eds and some of the writing that's come out, is that if you are going to speak about these cases publicly, and your approach is not that you 100% believe the accusations are true, then what ends up happening is that your response ends up at least being perceived as. And it's very difficult, as I thought about in my head, what it, what it would be like, what it would sound like to actually walk through this case at this point, which I'm not going to do, and I'm about to tell you why, which is it's very hard to do that without actually or being perceived to be undermining the person making the accusation. And I just have no interest in in doing that. I have no interest in undermining Tara Reid at this point. I, I don't I don't know enough. And 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 look there and I felt the same way about Dr. Ford. There are like there are two outcomes there are two like possibilities here, two possible realities, basically. One, this really happened as it's being described. And we have immense brokenness and evil that took place in a way that hasn't anywhere near uh, sort of adequately addressed. Or we have a case of uh, fabrication of a traumatic event taking place that never took place uh, in order to advance some sort of political or personal end. Both of those options are horrific. And so my basic posture here is, again, to follow very closely 
the journalism that takes place, the investigations that take place. I do believe it's only responsible for investigations to take place. But to not feel and, and to not speak in a way that isn't serving the public, that isn't serving you, the audience, I don't think you need. And f- frankly, I feel ill-equipped to be providing sort of analysis on this kind of thing. And, and so that, that's the posture I have. Uh, obviously, this televised interview this, this coming weekend is uh, going to be significant. Um, I'm not suggesting I have a rule of sort of silence on these kinds of issues. Um, I think especially as even the convention isn't until August, uh, there's not a time pressure to sort of make some sort of decisive point of view uh, made to argue sort of one way or the other. And I'd say even if there was, I might leave that to other people people in this case. Like, I just don't feel like I'm an expert on assessing the veracity of such a claim. I I do feel very deeply that accusations like this should not be dismissed out of hand. And so the best way I think we can sort of honor the gravity of something like this, acknowledging the, the unique sort of environment and the factors and the history here is to take it seriously. To, to follow the people, the, the reporting of the people whose job it is to look into something like this. I uh, understand approaches different than mine might be valid or even more valid. Um, I'm just speaking personally for me. What I feel equipped to do, um, is, uh, to follow this closely, to share with you when there are major updates. Uh, and especially this is, this is a podcast about the presidential election. So, you know, as this develops, as it affects the the race, we're going to cover it um, either here or probably through uh, Substack. Uh, I I'm going to be sharing significant news articles. I'm going to be sharing Vice President Biden's comments on Morning Joe. I'm going to be sharing Tara Reid's interview as a service to to, to help uh, my my readers. Uh, follow this closely. I feel like that's something I, I can do. What I'm not going to do is sort of every time some piece of information um, comes out, say, well, now I'm, you know, 60% sure that that this accusation is is true. Now I'm 40% true. Um, that, that doesn't feel responsible um, to me. And, you know, this is related to something I wrote earlier this week on Substack regarding another circumstance. Politics is not about personal brand management. Let me repeat that. Politics is not about personal brand management. Uh, I I wrote about this concerning um, how some evangelicals were responding to Al Mohler's endorsement of Trump and in a way to Al Mohler's own endorsement of Trump. But um, you could read that on reclaiminghope.substack.com. We've been so amazed by the number of you who have subscribed in recent days. Um, Just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen our numbers grow and we've seen our community grow. And it's just so, and I mean that sincerely, it's encouraging. (laughs) You know, like uh, we put a ton of work into, uh, into the newsletter uh, every day, every week. And um, the fact that more people are interested in that, that more people are benefiting from the newsletter, 
um, is, is super encouraging. And so, uh, would love if you aren't already subscribing, would love for you to do that again at reclaiminghope.substack.com. And if you are a subscriber, um, just thank you a, a great deal. All right. Well, that's all I want to cover before we get to our interview with Sean. I'll introduce him after the break. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. All right. Our interview this week is uh, with Sean McElwee. As I said, I'm just really excited to have him on. As I know in the interview, I followed his work for a while, but it was after an interview that he did for Politico just in the last couple of weeks. I decided, hey, I really need to reach out and see if he'll come on the show. I think he's an important voice. And I think our conversation and just his work generally will help you understand Yes, what's happening on the left, but as you'll hear, he's someone who has his eye on the whole electorate, which, you know, if you're going to be a successful political operator, I really recommend having your eye on the whole electorate, even if you're trying to advance you know, a specific agenda. Sean is co-founder and executive director of Data for Progress. He oversees uh, Data for Progress's operations, communications, polling, development, and strategy. Sean has guided Data for Progress into a trusted public opinion research organization that has worked with Congress members, senators, presidential candidates, and movement organizations on public opinion and policy design. He spent nearly a decade bringing cutting-edge data analysis and polling to progressive advocacy, and his work has been cited by politicians at the National state and local level. His writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Vox, and the Washington Post, and he's frequently quoted in those publications on progressive policy and strategy. He has published academic research in the Forum and Perspectives on Politics and Policy Research with the Century Foundation, Demos, and the Scholar Strategy Network. Uh, Prior to co-founding Data for Progress, Sean was a policy analyst at Demos, where he led the development of new research methods to study racial equity and democracy reforms. I'm I'm not going to give too much introduction. Let's jump right into it. This is my conversation with Sean McElwee on the Faith 2020 podcast. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for joining us on the Faith 2020 podcast. Uh, Great to have you here. Uh, Great to be here. Really looking forward to this conversation. Really respected your, your work from... From afar, would love for you to just tell us a bit about Data for Progress. What led you to help found the organization? And is it, you know, now, now that you're, uh, uh, you got your legs under you quite a bit, that's, that's the least you can say, you know, is it shaping into what you'd hoped it would be? Yeah. Um, so the, the idea of Data for Progress is, you know, to take sort of public policy and the work that, um, you know, academics and folks do in public policy and sort of directly integrate it with sort of polling and narrative work um, designed to actually influence sort of the media conversation and the political conversation. And I used to work at Demos, which is an organization I I love and respect, Um, but like Demos never had a sort of like in-house sort of polling operation. It was something, you know, we sort of would like work with a pollster from outside. And the idea behind Data for Progress is let's always have the sort of policy work and the polling work working together and thinking together instead of having a once a week call with your pollster, like your pollster is always there. Everyone's thinking polling. 
Um, and I think like, you know, maybe we are sort of too polling oriented as an organization, but over the long term, what I'd like to see progressives starting to do is everything that we're doing, like, let's think through the sort of public opinion, the narrative aspect of it. Let's think of where the narratives are already aligned with us and where those narratives needs to be changed. You know, my dream is that every progressive organization someday will have someone on staff who understands polling, is thinking about polling, is thinking about the work they're doing um, in the context of public opinion. And I think that because too often polling is seen as like a dirty word. It's like, oh, you know, like this is too poll tested. This is too message tested. And in our work, I try to encourage everyone who we work with to consider and think through the fundamental humanity of our respondents, which means we do a lot more work on with open endeds. Um, you know, it doesn't always mm -hmm. come through yeah, in our, yeah. our memos, um, but we do open endeds all the time. We have a, a, a thing called a box for fields at the end of our surveys where we ask people sort of what, what were their reactions to our surveys and everyone and on staff will like reads through those um, because we want to understand how the people who are taking our surveys are interacting with those. And so I really want to sort of move polling away from being seen as this dirty, um, dirty word or, or sort of like grimy idea that's designed to just, you know, get a policies across the finish line and think about it as instead as an ongoing dialogue with the American public um, in a similar way as like an organizer has a dialogue with the American public. You know, when you're doing survey research, there are people on the other end of the, 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 the polling instrument. Um, and, you know, maybe they're just taking your poll because they want some more poker chips um, for their online poker game. Um, <laughs> but which is, one, you know, one way the, that folks get recruited into this. Um, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, like uh, we actually like I, one of the things I love doing is sort of reading through open end is what we, we, we had one recently where someone said, you know, like, I love taking the survey. I debated my husband uh, about the ideas in it for three hours. Um, and so I just <laughs> yeah. think that people can forget because you start to see people as the sort of strongly support to somewhat support to strongly oppose um, that they're actually really processing the ideas that you're presenting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one thing, and I'm not sure if this resonates, uh, you know, with you, but as, as I think about uh, the, the name of the organization almost seems to me like an inherent challenge to sort of the the technocratic sort of the data will inevitably lead to uh, the right direction. Uh, it's it's data for progress, not data is progress, <laughs> sort of. Um, and so t talk a, a little bit about, I mean, I'm, sh I'm sure you get the, you get the criticism that, uh, that, that you are sort of um, marshalling data to advance an ideological project. And, and, and I mean, I, I think you would say like, yes, <laughs> like, like that is, <laughs> that is what we're doing, but, but talk a little bit about how you, how you think about that. Yeah. So I think that the problem with that like way of thinking is like it actually presumes a thing about polling that I don't believe is true, which is that polling is not real because you're not wrong that if polling wasn't real and we could just be like any number, any policy is popular the right way. Right. You know, you at some point would hit reality. Right. Because if you're just going around saying everything's popular and in fact, some things are not popular then you are going to encourage your political coalition or politicians to adopt a policy that will lead to their own electoral ruin. So from my perspective, 
you know, that would be a very short-term uh, theory of of polling um, because of it's it, public opinion is real, right? The public does clearly have opinions, um, and if you're constantly lying about those opinions, at, at some point you will become so divorced from public opinion uh, that you will suffer major setbacks. Um, and we work a lot with um, politicians who have to get elected and reelected. And so they start to have a, uh, are we allowed to say swear words on this? <laughs> uh, they, they start to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, detect, they have a reality detector. Um, yeah. That, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's not in my interest to say everything's popular because eventually I'll just be the guy on Capitol Hill that says everything's popular and the politicians who I need to believe me, uh, won't believe me. So, you know, there, there's two sort of ways that I think about public opinion. There's sort of like macro opinion. Um, and this is, is Mac can be as macro as something like which party do you trust on X issue? Um, and the macro opinion is real and it, and it in, and indicates to us a lot of important things about the contour of American public policy. Democrats are trusted the environment. Republicans are tra- trusted on national security. Um, yeah. and then there's sort of micro opinion, which is, if you have this idea, you know, take it sort of macro support. Um, what are the ways to sort of most advance that idea? And we think about sort of both of those um, questions of like, you know, a macro opinion is sort of like it is undeniably true that Medicare negotiate with pharmaceutical companies is more popular than uh, reparations. Uh, you know, you can try pulling it a lot of different ways and it'd be very right. hard to get a yeah. result. But micro opinion is sort of like, all right, given that reparations is unpopular, what can we do to sort of find a way to make whole uh, what has been done in this nation in terms of race equity in a way that is effective and can get across the finish line, can get 50 percent support. And so just to to finish that thought, I I think a lot about what James Clyburn has done with the um, 10-20-30 Right. That is right. a way to sort of make whole um, the the rural African-American population in this country that has been so devastated by um, theft of land um, and just constant uninvestment. Uh, but it's very popular. You know, it's undeniable. If you test that message, it will be popular. Um, so I think that that's an example of sort of like I'm not I, I would never go to a politician and say, yes, reparations is popular. Um, because they would then come up against the reality of public opinion. But what we can do is we can say, if we have this idea, what are the ways that we can get there in an effective, uh, popular way? Uh, to take one more example, Medicare for all, um, that is an issue that uh, is very narrowly contested. Um, that is the, the American public opinion on, on uh, for the federal government uh, being the single payer for health care. Uh, yeah. It's very solidified and it's about, 50-50. Um, you know, there's there's some don't knows, but when you really put it against the line, it's going to be 50-50. So I take that and I don't say, well, you know, we have to give up on Medicare for all. I take that and say, okay, so what are the building blocks of Medicare for all that we can do to show the public that we are credible when we say that every American should have, you know, government health insurance? What are the sort of mechanisms that we can do um, to sort of build up the trust that, would, that people would have to have in the government provision of health care? And so I think things like Medicaid expansion is something that's very popular. It's something that Data for Progress does a lot of work on. 
It's something that's a powerful mobilization message for black voters. It's also something that's a powerful persuasion message for independents. And it's something yeah. that when Democrats take office, they can deliver and people see it in their lives and they turn out and vote for it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to drill down more into sort of current political dynamics. But before we get there, sure. I, I did think it would be interesting. would love to hear a, a bit uh, uh, my audience is going to be very familiar with some of the institutions that you've been a, a part of and sort of your your journey to Data for Progress. Uh, you uh, went to King's College, uh, did some interesting work. I believe you were an intern at uh, Reason, at the Reason Foundation. Would love to just hear from you. Describe a bit about sort of your your journey, your political journey and how faith was was a part of that and and just map out for us kind of uh how you got from king's college to to data for progress sure you if you went back to king's college you wouldn't be as surprised i will say i um i was invited back several times to to talk to students and one thing you've seen is you have seen among young christians um very interesting i think um shift shift shifts in political attitudes um, that I think are going to be very salient in politics for the next couple of years. Yeah, I grew up in a super evangelical um, household. Um, when I was a kid, I actually had a, a Audacity, which is like a music cutting program. And I would listen <laughs> yeah. to rap music and I would cut all the swears out so we could play them in the car <laughs> yeah, yeah. on the way to church. Sure. Um, and um, so very religious, uh, you know, went to church every Sunday. Um, I went to King's College um, because it was sort of like a, a detente with my parents where they wanted us to go to a Christian school. But I was like, oh, but I want to date and I want to be in the city. Um, you know, yeah, I want a Christian school yeah, in New York alcohol. City. Yeah, <laughs> That's the thing about King's. Is it attracts a certain type of person. Um, so a lot of my friends, because like, you know, if you if you ever done like Christian college stuff, the terrifying thing you, you I don't know if any of these are true, but you'll hear about these policies where it's like the the boy, uh, the guys and the girls have to work on separate sidewalks, walk on separate yeah, sidewalks right. and stuff. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that it, it was a very intellectually fecund environment at King's. Yeah. There are definitely liberal students. There are more now. Um, there was like lots of debate and stuff like that. And I started to realize um, like, oh, I I might not exactly be a libertarian because when you're a kid, if you're in a conservative family, the way mm. you rebel isn't by That's being right. like a liberal. It's like you're a <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with like no government, and that means like no government yes. regulation of weed. Um, yes. <laughs> and I was I would be at these uh, reason there were like five interns, and it was sort of like it was really interesting because like I was the sort of like learned at the time that I was like the sort of most left leaning intern and then there was sort of like one that was like a radley balco type libertarian <laughs> like very only concerned about the surveillance state type of stuff and then yeah. there was like a neocon libertarian um and then there was sort of like a a, a sort of like conservative-ish libertarian that was like you could have basically been at heritage type of person where they're like yeah i'm a yeah. libertarian except on abortion type of stuff um right. and like sort of that that you would just we would all be in the sort of like intern uh, table, like having these debates about um, politics. And I sort of started to realize like, oh, okay, I'm on this sort of like left spectrum of libertarianism. Um, and then as I, as I discussed, I think with Ezra, it was sort of the lived reality of 
America, sort of seeing like, mm. oh, these ideas of upward mobility in which like the yeah. government not being involved creates upward mobility uh, don't really mesh with the reality that I'm seeing. It turns out a lot of whether or not you have upward mobility depends on whether or not you can go to college, right? Whether or not you can take an right. unpaid internship over the summer. Um, and so I sort of had this double life where I was at a lot of these sorts of more uh, libertarian or conservative leaning institutions, but I was like writing stuff for Salon about like what I was learning at Salon.com about what I was yeah. learning about sort of inequality and upward mobility. Um, and eventually I, I was, at, I, I went to Demos. I got an internship there as a researcher and I think you know, Tammy, who hired me, just thought it was the funniest thing ever that I was like, <laughs> I've been a libertarian. Um, but I did a lot of work there on sort of labor power in the form of like worker cooperatives, um, thinking about like sort of beyond GDP, which is like, why are we measuring everything in terms of gross domestic product uh, yeah. with a guy named Lou Daly, who has done a lot of thought at the sort of center of like sort of Christian social teaching and like progressive politics. Yeah. Well, I was going to sort of save this for the, the end of the interview, but you've sort of taken us there and, and you, you pointed out something, you, you know, if you go to 15 years ago, at least within democratic party, sure. The democratic party institutions, the faith energy to the extent that there, there was faith energy really seemed to be on, on the, on the center left. Um, you, you had, you know, dozens of pro-life faith, mm -hmm. you know, motivated democratic members. Now, if you look at the scene, I think it's hard to argue anything, but, uh, the fact that the faith energy is on in, on the left wing of the party, whether you're talking about Reverend William Barber, or I read in an interview, you, you said your sort of ideal presidential candidate would be AOC. And, and I, I just thought it was very, and we've talked about this on the show before, it's very significant to me that the day after she wins her primary, she's in America Magazine talking about how her faith uh, influences her support for criminal justice reform. Um, and so it's just a very fascinating time when you look at faith in the Democratic Party. It, how how do you see and I, I'd also say I resonate with your your views that there are interesting um, that, that even among evangelicalism, sort of uh, when you go to younger evangelicals, interesting things are happening ideologically that might um, uh, might bear fruit in some ways down the line. But from your view, particularly, you know, both personally and as you're advising politicians, advocacy groups from your position at, at Data for Progress, where do you see faith in sort of the, the future of the progressive movement? Yeah, I, I still identify as a poorly practicing Protestant, a PPP. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so the, the way I think about this is, is several things. Um, one, I actually used to get World Magazine. So I remember the profile of Bart Stupak. Um, that was yeah, so I know right. the Democrats you're talking about. Yeah. The type of Democrat. Um, yeah, I think that there's a couple of things. Like one is, and this is something that is like the sort of macro trend in American politics that's really worrying to me, is the sort of disconnection of a generation of politics, uh, or sorry, a generation of sort of like voters 
and, and even sometimes political thinkers from any institutions, right? Not just yeah, the church, right. but yes, like yes, unions. Yes. And I think that in yes. a lot of interesting ways, you know, um, candidates like Sanders are benefiting from the sort of very lack of institutional thinking among a lot of young people in this country. Like many young people, I think that there are no formal institutions that they huh. sort of belong to. Um, yeah. And what you do see is like, you see that sort of like you have these black voters and, and the thing that I've been thinking about the most sort of post primary is, you know, why does every black voter support single payer, but doesn't vote for Bernie Sanders? And I think that right. we really should reject off or, 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 or for Morgan, right? Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. You mean Harper? Yeah, Morgan Harper. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And I think we have to reject off at the beginning this idea that like voters are stupid. Um, they're not. <laughs> Um, I think yeah. there are a lot of reasons to to for why those voters would vote for uh, Biden. And among other reasons, it's it's not absurd to me that they would believe that, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, is another politician who's saying big things that they're not going to deliver on. Um, and I think that, you know, there there is a credibility gap with progressive politicians where a lot of black voters say, like, what what are you doing for my community day in and day out? Um, and you can say a lot of nice things, but if you haven't shown up in a real way, voters aren't going to believe you. But the other mm -hmm. reason is because, uh, many black voters, um, are connected to the church. And it's something that if you listen to interviews with James Clyburn, he talks a lot about, and yeah. I've seen this in races in New York as well, where the candidate that wins, um, is the candidate that spends a lot of time in churches. And the candidate who wins often spends a lot of time with labor leaders. And in, yeah. in New York, you have this very interesting political dynamic that I'm going to be canceled for talking about, but it is occurring, in which you have black voters who are very tied to institutional politics, be it the church, be it labor. Um, and on the other side of the primary, you almost always have disproportionately whiter voters, disproportionately younger voters who do not have those institutional ties, whose politics yeah more and more coming from things like social media. Um, and so I think that you're seeing in New York this very nascent political divide that's occurring, that's sort of the, between the institutions um, and between the sort of like institution-less um, social media style of politics. And it's something I, I think deeply about. And I think that one of the things that progressives have to wrestle with is what is our relationship going to be to these institutions? But I think right. one of the things that our country has to wrestle with is what is our politics going to look like when these institutions um, go away? Right. Yes. Well, well, there are a couple things that happen, right? So I think these institutions generally foster, they, they sort of force a, a pre-mediation of views before people mm -hmm. get to the ballot box. So folks are already working out sort of pluralism and what it means to live in a community of diverse people within unions, within churches. And then that experience, I think, affects how they view political promises and sort of political ambitions. And then related to that is I think institutions, particularly the church, sort of fosters a level of political ambivalence. And I think a skepticism of a utopianism that can sometimes creep into progressive politics. And so 
there's there's sort of um a weariness of of big of big promises um people are looking i think particularly in the in, in the black church folks have never been able to rely on even their basic rights being secured and so when when someone comes along making big promises um that 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 go sort of way beyond uh you know basic uh security um i think there is a there is a skepticism uh there is a skepticism there i guess let me ask you a question about the democratic party which is i think you're you're right we're seeing religious disaffiliation we're still in a a, a profoundly religious uh country so compared to compared to west sort of western europe we're profoundly more religious um, that than uh, all of Western Europe, uh, when you th- when you think about the Democratic Party, uh, it's interesting the vice that uh, is created. You have the most religiously adherent voters in the country when you're talking about committed Black Protestants, and then a third of the party that's as you sort of alluded to, mostly white, mostly uh, on the younger side and religiously unaffiliated that are both a part of the same coalition. Um, how does that, and, and, and I mean, you started talking about this, but, but how do you hold together that, that kind of coalition in a way that respects the, the various motivations of the voters who are, who are a part of that party? Yeah. And I mean, I was, I've always been like, very anti-new atheist uh some of my earliest writing in salon is sort of critiques of this mode of thinking um because i mean among other things i think like the extent to which it flattens so many important like political divides between just like religion Mm. that thing um like so many economic factors and demographic factors that drive historical conflict um, and politics are just flattened down in this type of thinking. And I think that that's one core part of it is fundamentally, you know, part of doing politics. Uh, there's a famous quote, and I, I use it a lot. I use it probably too much, but people don't uh, care how much you know until they know how much you care. And sure. I'm the person, a type of person who views politics primarily as outcome oriented. And the first, the worst way to get the outcome you want is to disparage something that matters a lot to someone that has no relevance to the political outcome that you're seeking huh. to yeah, yeah, gain. Yeah. And in fact, if for someone, you know, religiosity is very important to their politics, you know, you want to sort of make the argument for your uh, political outcome using a frame of reference that matters a lot to them. And there are a very important traditions in religious texts, uh, particularly, you know, the, the Christian texts, uh, the Bible, uh, about, uh, about caring for the poor. Um, and you yeah, see right. this in the, in the, in the barber. Um, and I think that barber has shown how effective that invoking these traditions in a sort of coalition way, uh, in a solidaristic way can be effective. Yeah. So I think that I think that there are lots of ways that we can sort of build, um, build understanding and build political coalitions. But the first thing, honestly, that has to happen is a lot of voters who process everything that occurs in politics through social media 
have to understand that millions of Americans, far more Americans than interact with politics through Twitter, interact with politics through their church. And I yes. remember watching a, a recent Queens DA race that happened and everyone was like, oh, we're, we're starting to win this. Look at social media. And the thing <laughs> that I, I looked at is I always looked at who was at the churches each each week yeah. because I knew that like for so many voters, that's that is the sort of way that they're going to understand. And, um, and and obviously, like, you know, labor movement obviously matters a lot here. But yeah. in a lot of ways, I think that the sort of lack of attention to religiosity that you're talking about mirrors a fundamental misunderstanding of labor um, because yes. there are so many people yeah. who just, I think, don't just really cannot conceptualize what it is like to like approach politics uh, first and foremost through the lens of um, lived organizations. And you have a very bad character character of what the labor movement does and, and, and what it would look like for progressives to, to engage with it. So I think the first thing is just you got to get people to understand that none of the things that you want to happen are going to happen if you are not creating an institution that is connected with other institutions. So yeah. for, for me, it's it's been that one of the mentors of our organization is someone who um, has advised labor unions for a long time. Um, and I, I will fully acknowledge we don't do enough to sort of be connected um, to that movement. And it's something that will actually, I think, uh, your, your, your listeners will be excited to see over the next few weeks some very interesting work that we're doing that's a little more closely aligned. But I think that it is sort of, you have to start to think about politics through these institutions um, and start to figure out who are the people I need to connect with um, so that I can sort of win over this institution. Um, yeah. And I think that we tend to, I mean, just fundamentally, like so much of the ideas that, that we have in the left about canvassing, right? You don't canvass, you canvass people it, as individuals at their that's house, right? right? Yep, that's right. And so there's already a sort of a sort of model of organizing a model of winning elections that centers the individual decontextualized. <laughs> that uh, that resonates with, with my experience. I mean, uh, I remember canvassing in 08 uh, for Barack Obama and uh, meeting folks who I'd have conversations. Uh, and, and I just I, I actually write about one interaction I had with a voter. And it was just really clear that we had our conversation, but I knew that voter was going to have to go back and mediate our conversation with her congregation on Sunday. And if I wasn't giving her something, not just to sort of um, win her over as an individual, but give her something that she'd be able to to, uh, have something to say when she was pressed in a completely different way in the institution that she was a part of, all my work was going to be for for nothing. I, I think that's a really really uh, great insight. The other thing I'd say is obviously we don't have time to go into this, but the, the historical ties between unions and faith movements is profound. Uh, and so just, just to make that connection, um, I, I want to go, you know, the reason I reached out uh, to you when I did was you gave an interview at Politico with Michael Grunwald. Uh, he, he asked you about the, the Bernie campaign and, and, what what happened there? You replied, if you had to boil it down to one problem, it was the belief that Sanders people articulated early on that in a big field, 
they could win the nomination with 30% of the vote. You know, elections tend to be won with 50% of the vote. And if you're not even trying to attract 50% to your vision, it leads to this view that you don't need to persuade anyone. You just need to lock in the base and mobilize new voters. That's setting yourself up for failure. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that. But as we look to the general, I've been I've been someone who in 2016, uh, that is very similar to how I characterized uh Democrats' approach in the general in 2016, um, and, and I'd love to get your sense of, of whether that critique of how the Sanders campaign approached the primary, wh- whether you'd extend that to the general, or for you, is, is that uh, is that approach for, for mediating sort of uh, intra-party squabbles and, and differences of opinion? Uh, no, it's it's broad. I mean, I... I have sort of watched with some dismay that I think this sort of view of politics primarily about sort of maximal uh, antagonism and maximal mobilization um, has taken hold. I don't necessarily think that like there are not times in which we need to be maximally antagonistic. But what we've had is we have a, a progressive movement, I think, that thinks mostly in that one muscle of how do we antagonize, how do we mobilize. Um, And I think that we actually need to sort of have the muscle for persuasion. And what I was saying with Grunwald was not just that like there was like a strategic problem of the 30%. It is totally feasible to me that there is some path to winning the nomination with 30% that sort of ruins the momentum. But my argument was that when you just have that mentality of thinking that is you know, we're locking down our base, we're mobilizing, we're antagonizing, mm. you, you just structure your, you, you position yourself to the world in a way that's unhelpful for what actually wins political elections, which is persuading a lot of people, um, who, you know, there, there are 300 million people in this country, there are two presidential candidates, most of the people who are going to vote with you, vote for you disagree with you on probably right. many issues. And yeah. so, yeah, so, and, 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 you know, like, just as a matter of, of re- political reality, you know, there are many voters in West Virginia who voted for Trump and then voted for Manchin. You know, it yeah. is undeniable. Uh, there are many voters in Ohio who voted for Trump and voted for Sherrod Brown. Like, it is undeniable. Like, it is true that American politics is increasingly polarized, um, but it is also true that there are some non-trivial number of voters who do change their minds between elections. Um, and there are some non-trivial number of voters who do decide to sit out in some yeah. elections. You have to do right. both things. But we've thought a lot about the sort of folks who sit out, and I think it's important. Um, but we also, as progressives, have to think about the folks who switch. And here's why. Because if we don't, other people will. And yes. if we don't have, if we are going to a politician and saying, these are people who are persuadable, here's the issue, someone else will. And maybe it's going to be the sugar lobby. They're going to be like, you know what? People are really persuadable on the issue of Diet Coke. We need to yeah. get the subsidies up. Right. And, and I do believe that there are aspects of the progressive agenda that could be persuasion issues um, that are issues that are not scary to independents, that are issues that, that we can win on. Um, but because we sort of shut ourselves out of those conversations, um, we don't get to have them. I mean, like 
one of one of the issues that I'm most excited about is 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 Medicaid expansion because I think it it actually hits both buckets. It's an issue that's very important to our base, Democratic base. Um, it's something that is actually very important to independents. Um, you know, expanding access to healthcare in a sort of um, affordable way is exciting to people. But most importantly, it's something that once you pass it, people feel the political feedback mechanism. They actually see a politician making a promise, doing something that affects the lives of people around them, and then they engage in the political process more. So my argument is, is we have to flex the persuasion muscle and we have to flex the muscle as progressives of thinking about issues as persuasion issues and making the case that we can persuade voters with these issues. I completely agree on Medicaid expansion and just generally on, uh, and particularly their potency with Rust Belt religious voters, um, the persuasive potential of uh, pushing on labor, pushing on Medicaid expansion, pushing even on, uh, pu- pushing even explicitly on, on poverty, um, I think it would surprise people how effective in the past it has been. You look at the Ohio labor referendums in Ohio and when uh, groups came in with values-based messaging, we saw uh, percentages among uh, evangelicals and Catholics jump double-digit points in support of, uh, in support of those measures. Um, uh, so so I, I, I really uh, resonate there. Um, let, let's, let's turn, we're almost running out of time, but how, how do you see the general election shaping up? I, 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 how do you feel about a Biden as the presumptive nominee, and, and what do you think? Uh, what What do you think we should be attentive to uh, in the coming months as we head closer to November? Yeah, so um, I think Biden's in a pretty uh, undeniably strong position. Obviously, that could change, but. Um, you know, you're in a situation in which your incumbent is presiding over, you know, Great Depression levels of unemployment and a global pandemic that uh, I think a lot of credible uh, news anchors are going to say and media organizations are going to say he's disastrously mishandling. If we look at the polling, um, the national numbers look pretty strong for Biden, and those are also uh, replicated in pretty strong um, state numbers. Where, I, where I'm sort of looking at where I see concern areas is I'd really like to see stronger numbers for Biden among Latino voters um, and among yeah. African-American voters. And I'd like to see um, stronger numbers among young voters. And I think that what I'd really like to see with the Biden campaign is over the next month or so, um, you know, doing some outreach. And I, and I think, by the way, the fact that Sanders and Biden seem to have been working so well together is, I think, a, a good sign for, for Democrats in the general. Um, but let's see, you know, some some points in which Biden sort of moves in a more ambitious direction. I think climate is such an important issue. And, you know, like I've talked about it as a persuasion issue. Um, it's definitely a third party prevention issue. I mean, there's a reason that the third party threat is the Green Party. You know, climate yeah, is right. an issue. Environment is an issue. If if Biden was stronger on that, we could reduce third party defections. And it's also an issue um, that a lot of young evangelicals. It's where they're, you know, when I when I was talking about young voters who are sort of Republican leaning but persuadable, that's a lot of young religious people who yeah. really think that where the Republican Party is going on stewardship, 
uh, is the toe in the wrong direction. And those voters are persuadable if we're hitting them uh, with good climate messaging, good environmental messaging. So I think yeah. that that's a place where I'd like to see Biden um, really center a lot of his campaign because it's unity and it's persuasion. Yeah, there's a strong tie there. Biden was so integral to uh, facilitating and, and you know playing a role in Pope Francis's visit. Uh, and of course, what did Pope Francis you know focus on? He focused on climate when he was here. Um, so I, I, I agree there as well. There's there's um, both persuasion and mobilization potential there. I guess the last question I'd have is, you know, there are some would say, yeah, but especially on the young voter side, you know, if if like the primary is over, um, if if Biden spends you know the next four months trying to win a primary that he already won. Um, Maybe he's able to pick up some gains, but I, I think pe- some would say, A, those gains are going to come, uh, m- much of those gains are going to come just through Democratic Party consolidation moving forward. And then B, like, doesn't he risk sacrificing the advantages he has uh, with um more moderate voters with older voters. Do you think that there's, um, do, do you think that in order to, to make the gains that you want to see among young voters, black and Hispanic voters, he has to, he has to risk uh, uh, some of his advantages with, with other constituencies? No, I think it depends on how he does it, right? <laughs> there, there are certain issues I think he could, um, you know, try to win over, you know, Sanders voters on that, that would be, costly. Um, but I think that if you're talking about something like climate, um, and I, I apologize to keep going back to this, I mean, we could talk about other issues. I think pharmaceuticals yeah. are an area yeah, where sure. progressives are right. I'm not saying progressives are always right. I'm saying that there are areas <laughs> where progressives are right. And I think that yeah, yeah, yeah. on the issue of should the government be able to seize the patents from companies that are charging too much um, and allow other companies to generically produce that. I mean, when you say it, it doesn't even sound like that much of a progressive idea. It's other companies producing drugs. We're, we're preventing the sort of government from monopoli- allowing one company to monopolize the production of a drug. So that's an amazing persuasion issue. It's one where, you know, Biden's already strong with seniors and Trump made a lot of promises to seniors about drug prices. He's done nothing to, to actually reduce them. So I think that yeah. there, there are issues where if he was reaching out to Sanders, he would hurt himself with, with, with a lot of persuadable voters. But there are also issues where Sanders has tapped into an important aspect mm. of American life that is wrong, that is not in line with, with American values. And I think that on the sort of climate change, I mean, my God, like we can talk about putting a bunch of lobbyists in charge of the EPA <laughs> and gutting regulations. Right. Like that's yeah. not something persuadable voters are like, oh, you know what we really need is like more. <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. laughs> um, so I think that, I, I am not a type of progressive who will deny that, like, there are ideas that progressives have that if Biden went really all in on them, it would hurt him with independence. Uh, but I will say that there are ideas that progressives have that can be messaged in effective ways with independence. Well, hey, uh, this uh, has been a great conversation. want to thank you for joining us. want to thank you for your work and your polling throughout the primary was, was much heralded. And uh, we'll, we'll pay attention to what you're doing uh, throughout the general and beyond. But thanks so much for joining, Sean. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean. Pretty wide ranging. Could have talked with him for uh, much longer and would encourage you to follow uh, follow his work. Sean is on Twitter at Sean uh, McElwee. It's uh, uh, S-E-A-N-M-C-E-L-W-E-E. And so would encourage you to uh, follow him there. And Theater for Progress is the kind of site that you should have bookmarked, no matter your political perspective. I mean, I don't agree with him uh, on everything. I think he was he was aware of that. <laughs> I, I'm obviously aware of that. Uh, but it's important to listen. Uh, well, A, I agree with him on quite a bit. And then B, it's important to listen to people who you don't agree with. And so if you're listening as a more thoroughly conservative person, I'd still recommend checking in with Data for Progress. And, and if you want to be sort of um, instrumentalist about it, you know, it's a good window into how progressives are thinking. But I would urge you not to be so crass about it. And instead say, hey, this is a really smart guy. He's doing good work. It was worth listening to. Maybe I could learn uh, a few things from him. Uh, and as he noted, I appreciate the disposition he shared uh, to learning from voters and learning from the electorate and not just simply trying to, to, to move them in his preferred direction. All right. That's all we have for this week. We're now in May. And so it's, uh, just another month closer to the election. Uh, as we noted, Biden has his committee, uh, search committee for his running mate, uh, now up and running. We're getting a firmer sense of sort of the state of play for the general election. I think with COVID, there are still significant question marks around how this is going to affect the presidential election. What does it mean? That, you know, we're in May and the candidates are not able to do public rallies, which uh, in the case of Trump, especially such a major part of their political strategy. Hopefully we'll find out or at least get clear on the answers to some of those questions as we move through May. And then in a future episode, we'll uh, we'll have a conversation about Justin Amash, who uh, has inserted himself into the race and we'll analyze what that might look like moving forward. Until then, this is Michael Weir. This is a Faith 2020 podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.